If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Previously on Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. So what are you thinking of when you see these ads? These remind me of these adoptions for little, little puppies and little kittens in the paper. Very discriminatory. It was only all our brown faces that were in there. She came out of her house and she was holding the newspaper. These are my babies. I can't imagine the shock that Lillian must have felt just reading the paper like it was any other day and turning the page and seeing a picture of her children. Jen and I look through weeks and weeks of papers. Every Tuesday, there's an AIM ad. I hope we find something. Oh my gosh. I think... I think this is... I think this is them. That looks so much like them. I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo, an investigative podcast by CBC News. I think that is Annette, and I think that's April. It really looks oh like them, Oh my gosh, yeah, it? it looks like them. There's no doubt that Ruth and Don will soon have their permanent home. Ruth is almost five, and Don has just turned five. So when, when were April and Annette born? Oh my gosh. That, that would be the right age, right? She would have just turned six. They're very close, and that looks so much like her. I find the photo that Cleo's sister April gave us when we met. It's the adoption picture of her and Annette, the only two Semeganist kids who were adopted together. We compare it to the AIM ad we just found. Oh, yes, that looks, that looks like that looks oh like them. Oh, my gosh. Look at th- that picture that you have oh there. That looks exactly like them. Yes. April, Annette, there they are. That's April's, her eyes. She has those distinct eyes. The girls in the paper are called Ruth and Dawn, but there's no doubt in my mind that this is April and Annette. We found it. This has to be the ad that Lillian saw in the paper. This must have been it. Because this, this must have been because it was just a few weeks before the meeting with yeah. the minister. Yeah. The girls are wearing matching white dresses with little round Peter Pan collars. They both have white ribbons peeking out of big curls. Their expressions are almost identical to the adoption photo. April has a big smile that scrunches up her eyes. Annette's smile is small, but you can see a hint of her dimple. Dawn has just turned five. Both girls are polite, intelligent, and well-mannered with flourishing social development. Both are good-natured, cheerful, and affectionate. In Johnny's Ward file, we saw a note that makes sense now that we understand a little bit more about what was going on in Lillian's life. It's from June 1973, two months after Lillian saw April and Annette's ad. In early June, we received word from Saskatoon that she is applying to adopt her own children. 
This would be unnecessary, for she could launch an appeal of the court's decision instead through a lawyer. I think of Wayne. He wondered if Lillian understood the process when she asked the government for help and when her kids became permanent wards. But this note makes it clear that she really didn't. Johnny was not informed of the possibility of him being returned to his mom. He would be most happy with a decision like this, but would likely be very hurt if, at the last minute, it did not materialize. So two months after Lillian saw April and Annette's ad, she told the government she wanted to adopt her children back. This investigation has been about finding Cleo and the truth about what happened to her. We're still hoping to see the police report into her death. And in a few weeks, we're planning a trip with Christine to New Jersey. She wants to visit Cleo's grave and find more answers. But before we delve deeper and try to find out what happened in the weeks before Cleo died, I want to know more about how she got there in the first place. Why didn't Lillian get her kids back? What were the government decisions that led to Cleo being adopted into a white family in the United States? Who were the people who thought this was a good idea, and why? Okay, we've just gotten to the Saskatchewan Archives in Regina. We're planning on spending the better part of three days here going through a bunch of archives from the 60s and 70s having to do with uh, the Adopt Indian and Métis program. We know there was a backlash, but we really just want to try to get some insight from the government point of view. Reception and reference services located across the hall. Within minutes, we're set up in the library of the provincial archives with 12 banker boxes worth of documents. Where to begin? We also asked to see some of the old AIM TV ads. Sometimes when you think the world's gone mad and it's time to say goodbye, why don't you listen very hard? the next time a baby cries. Because you know, he's calling out to you. And it's sure a happy sound. Each time a baby's born, the Lord tells mankind, take it one more round. One more it's actually a really sweet ad. The kids are doing normal kid things. There's a shot of two of them wearing matching red sweaters, reading a book. In the next shot, a little boy is kneeling next to a small bed, his hands clasped in prayer. One kid does a somersault on a bright red carpet. Actually, almost all of the shots are on the same blue couch and red carpet. I wonder if it's someone's living room or a fake set used by the advertising agency. Before they would show it to us, the archivists blurred the faces of the kids in this ad, but you can still see their little brown ears that peek out from behind the pixels. So you know they're all indigenous. The ad seems to be saying, look at these kids. They're brown, they're cute, and they can be, quote, normal too. One more round, mankind, will you make it? One more chance, mankind, will you take it? Take it the way a child takes love. When the AIM program was announced in 1967, Cyril MacDonald, 
the Minister of Welfare for the province, taped this statement. This is a special adoption program. For the past five years, the number of children in care of the Department of Welfare has been increasing by approximately 180 a year. This trend is causing us real concern. It's in black and white. MacDonald is holding a script, looking very earnest about this new government program he seems quite proud of. While we have had reasonable success in placing white children for adoption, we have had great difficulty in placing Indian and Métis children. One of the main reasons people have given for hesitating to take Indian and Métis children in their home is the fear of the possibility of discrimination against the child in the community itself. McDonald says racism is stopping people from adopting Indian and Métis kids, and it's the government's job to educate people and convince them that it's a good idea to open their homes. After all, Indian and Métis children have the same potential as white. The only difference is the color of their skin. All right, what is this? Oh my gosh, this is a lot of paper. Jen and I start pouring through the papers and learning about the AIM program. Several of the documents describe Indian and Métis kids as, quote, hard to place and put them in the same category as children with special needs, even if they don't have any. We come across plenty of instances where the government talks about the importance of giving kids a permanent home out of the foster system, but that wasn't their only motivation. An early AIM report highlights the fact that adopting out Indigenous kids will also save the government money. The report says paying foster parents is expensive. Back then, each child cost $1,000 per year. So in the long run, adopting out kids instead of fostering them will save the government tens of millions of dollars. The report also says that kids who stay in foster homes often end up in correctional institutions or juvenile court, and that giving a child a chance to find a good home will also pay real dividends in the future. Kids who were hard to adopt in Saskatchewan were sometimes sent to the United States and beyond, like Johnny and Cleo. They stopped doing that in 1975, one week after Johnny's adoption was finalized. This is a department memo from Minister Alex Taylor to the Deputy Minister about adoptions to the United States. Our government certainly does not want to be seen as one which exports its native people in order to solve its native problems. Okay, so this is in a folder called North Battleford Correspondence. A folder marked Correspondence North Battleford Region catches my eye. I read a strange memo about a social worker getting special recognition. Remember that Cleo and Johnny and all of their siblings went to court in 1972 in North Battleford. A judge made them all permanent wards of the province of Saskatchewan and therefore eligible for adoption. Here's a memo. She's getting an award of merit. You have been unanimously nominated by the AIMS Centre staff for the Salesperson of the Year Award. The salesperson of the year award? Yes. It kind of sounds like she works at Sears. And we will wait to receive further news of children who may appear suspiciously adoptable. What does all that mean? 
we don't quite understand why this social worker would be awarded a Salesperson of the Year award until a few minutes later when we see the original memo it was referring to. Oh, this, this is it. This must be the memo right here. The supervisor in North Battleford wanted to let head office know that the social workers there had a lot of court dates coming up and would therefore be getting more kids into care and more kids who'd be eligible for adoption. North Battleford has about 17 courts taking place before the end of October. We have babies, little boys, little girls, sibling groups we can mix and match. Some are blonde, some are dark. When the courts are completed and we obtain permanent wardship, histories and pictures will be forwarded as soon as possible. We are the only region that offers a full guarantee on our kids. They're all lovely, personable little people. And we know your families will be delighted with our selection. Oh my god. Like, wait, wait, wait. We've got some really good kids coming for adoption here. Mm-hmm. You can mix and match them. Our kids are guaranteed. That's such a strange tone to take. And and, and then his response to it. You've been unanimous, unanimously nominated by Ain Center staff for the Salesperson of the Year Award. Maybe it's all a big joke. I think the memo is supposed to be a joke, but it seems strange that social workers are joking about the selection of children they were making permanent wards and eligible for adoption. Advocates at the time weren't privy to memos like this, but they still had strong objections to the AIM program and especially its ads. The Métis Society of Saskatchewan wrote a letter to the minister calling the AIM ads racist. They questioned why children were placed in white homes and why some kids, like Johnny and Cleo, were sent to the United States. So this is a memo from the director of AIM to... By 1972, it seemed the government bowed to pressure from Indigenous groups and slightly changed the name from Adopt Indian and Métis to AIM Centre. They shifted the focus to include, quote, all hard-to-place children, but acknowledged most of them would still be of Native origin. But Indigenous groups didn't just want a name change. They wanted to change the system. They pitched proposal after proposal to create Indigenous-run foster centres or to find more First Nations and Métis families to adopt kids and to fund programs for mothers. The Saskatchewan Native Women's Association wanted to create a centre called Native Homes for Native Children. They said, Each child has a right to his cultural identity and heritage. Native children, in many cases, are being placed in white middle-class homes, which provide an environment alien to their emotional, spiritual, and cultural needs. Two years later, the group issued another memo. Whereas the Provincial Department of Social Services practices cultural genocide, they claimed the government, quote, practices cultural genocide by purposely placing Native children in white homes, and that this violates their right to self-determination. Native children suffer cultural shock when placed in an alien white environment. Reading these memos, I'm reminded of Christine and how she says she's still affected by being disconnected from her community and culture. I also think about Cleo. How did being separated from her home affect her and her decision to take her own life? It's taken decades for the courts to recognize what those advocates were saying 50 years ago, 
In 2017, Justice Bello Baba ruled in favor of 60 Scoop survivors in their lawsuit against the federal government. In his decision, he said, The impact on the removed The impact of the children. removed Aboriginal children has been described as horrendous, destructive, devastating, devastating and, tragic. and tragic. The uncontroverted evidence of the plaintiff's experts is that the loss of their Aboriginal identity left the children fundamentally disoriented with a reduced ability to lead healthy and fulfilling lives. The loss of Aboriginal identity resulted in psychiatric disorders, substance abuse, unemployment, violence, and numerous suicides. And I was surprised reading the next part of his decision. He said some researchers argue that the 60 scoop was even more harmful than the residential schools. Residential schools incarcerated children for 10 months of the year, but at least the children stayed in an Aboriginal peer group. They always knew their first nation of origin and who their parents were, and they knew that eventually they would be going home. Reading through the archives, it's clear that at the time, people in government didn't believe they were practicing cultural genocide. We find a memo from 1974 from the Director of Social Services. He dismisses the idea that Indigenous culture even needs protecting. It appears that the Indian people are fearful that their Indian culture is in danger of disappearing. I do not wish to give the impression that I feel that the Indian culture is of no value although it is quite difficult to understand exactly what it is. While attempts should be made to ensure that the child can live within this cultural heritage, this must be a secondary consideration. I came to the Navajo Nation looking for answers after an Indigenous elder vanished in the dead of night. But I soon found something else. A tangled web of violence and retaliation. It's survival out there. That's what it is. It's about survival. Those guys know something. I just think they're afraid to say it. People know you can get away with murder out there. I'm Connie Walker. Listen to Stolen, Trouble in Sweetwater on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't want to paint an unfair picture, though. We looked through thousands of documents, and there do seem to be efforts by government to try to recruit more Indigenous parents. And there's plenty of evidence that social services in all regions of the province were struggling to deal with the increasing number of Indigenous kids in care. We see memos by bureaucrats grappling to respond to the ongoing criticism from Indigenous groups. For years, Nora Cummings and other Indigenous advocates seem to try everything in their power to get attention and make change. As, as grandmas and mothers and aunties, we know what it's like to go through that. Those children are first and foremost because they, we, I am their voice and I'm going to be their protector. So why didn't it work? If they had been successful, would it have made a difference for Cleo or any of her siblings? Why didn't social workers and politicians listen to people like Nora? Why did thousands of Indian and Métis kids have to go through the trauma that Justice Balobaba outlined in his decision? We tried to ask several people associated with AIM and Child Welfare in Saskatchewan those questions. But many people who were directly involved in the program are hesitant to talk about it. It's become so controversial. Okay, we're here. 
except for Otto and Florence Dreger. All right, come right in. Come Hi. right in. How are you? I'm Connie. Fine. Uh, you're Connie? I'm Connie. Nice yeah, to meet I'm you. I'm Otto. Hi, Hi Florence. Nice to meet you. They're both retired now, but they were social workers who worked for the government of Saskatchewan during the 60s and 70s. I always remember these two children were left without anybody looking after them, and I was, there was no adult there, it was no food. And we found the mother, she had come home, and I don't know how I found her, but anyhow. And we talked about where she had been, she'd grown up, or she had spent most of her time in, in a residential school, and you know, all those things, and I don't remember How often anymore. did you hear that? How common was that, um, that, that the well, mothers or parents were residential oh, school survivors? Just about everybody. And, and most of did you have any knowledge of residential schools at that point? Like, did oh, you know what was going oh, on? Yeah, yeah, you did. yeah, yeah. You know, we were young social workers. We weren't in policy positions or anything like that at that point, and you tried to do the best you could with... They might not have been in policy that. positions when they first started out, but within a few years, Otto and Florence had moved to Regina, while Florence continued as a frontline social worker, Otto went on to start the AIM program. I was the director of child welfare. So that would have been right when the AIM program started. That's right. Yeah. So what was the AIM program, or what was the goal of the AIM program? Um, uh, stability. So uh, our thinking was that what we need to do is develop a program that will focus on getting uh, uh, basically many Indian children into adoption homes. Not all Otto echoes a lot of what we found from the archives. He says it was harder for them to place Indigenous kids in permanent homes, and those that didn't get adopted often ended up in bad situations. They felt security and stability were the most important. And the objective was to get as many adoption homes as possible in the First Nations communities for First Nations kids. So, fa- so there wasn't a focus on adopting into white families? Well, in, into everybody, into any homes. Any home. so Otto that, rejects so that, the idea uh, that uh, this was a deliberate continuation of the cultural genocide and, uh, that Indigenous advocates warned them. against. What was the reaction from the public to the ads? There was There was very good response. So there were a lot of children that were placed into adoption. It was not in terms of that this is an alternative to the residential schools and we're taking them away and then putting them into, into white foster homes. That was not the basis of the child welfare program. But it, if it wasn't the basis, it was often the result. It, it, well, the result was that the children were placed for adoption. But yeah. the alternative was for them to be in foster homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah because of the neglect there was, or the abuse that there was in families. And and so that's... Some of, the, some of the cases, I mean, it was just horrendous what, what kids yeah. were going through. Otto was only part of the AIM program for the first few years, so he says he didn't hear much about the opposition at the time, but he's heard plenty since then. But you mentioned the 60s scoop. I'm curious what you think about, because... Um, you know, it's recently just started getting a lot more attention. That's yeah. right. And and I think that, you know, most of the attention is focused on the kids who are now adults yes, and yeah, who that's right. are yeah. um, recovering from their experiences right. yeah. Um, yeah. but that's are right. very critical right. of exactly. programs yeah. like AIM. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. Yeah. What yeah. do you think of, of those criticisms that they have? Well, for them, from where they're sitting... 
they're, they're, they're appropriate. But uh, some of the assumptions that are made by some people are not, uh, not accurate. Like what? Which, which ones are not accurate? Well, not accurate. Yeah, they, their assumptions specific. are that they were taken away from their families uh, just, in just in order to be, them be in white families. And, and that's what I mean. Yeah. So, so you take um, issue with this, this scoop part of it that, uh, that implies that it was um, not because Deliberate, of... Yeah, that's right. Deliberately taking away yeah, their culture. Yeah. Okay. But I can understand the, the hostility that oh. people have because they were taken away from the, they were taken away from their identity, and obviously that is uh, that is so that I, I don't criticize them. It's it's just that's the, the, the dynamic of it. Otto's been hesitant to speak publicly about his role in the AIM program because he says he understands why survivors of the Sixty Scoop are angry. But he feels it is not a black and white issue. There are many shades of gray. And and the reason some of us like 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 myself have not spoken a goat out against the scoop is because it would immediately be seen as being defensive and critical of what's happening. And so that the only way I feel that we can talk about it is with people like yourself who are looking at the depths of this thing, trying to get an understanding of what really is going on, either this kind of, a, like the, the podcast you're doing, or research that is done so that you really get an understanding of what the dynamics are. Otherwise, it's just seen, oh, well, those guys are just being defensive of, of, the, of the evil that they've done. You know? No, I, I appreciate that. And we are very much trying to take that approach okay. where we're looking at the bigger context that's and right. exactly what that's you're right. saying, trying to yeah. help people understand yeah. how... And, and that's, that's why I'm prepared to talk to you about that. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Do you, um, just having said that, do you have any regrets about the program or the way it was executed or even not just AIM but child welfare in general at that time? Yeah. I, I don't have, I wouldn't say regrets, I, I say I have mixed feelings. I mean, just in hearing so many stories and experiences from people who went through mm-hmm. yeah. those kinds of adoptions oh, into yeah. white families, there's so many devastating oh, yeah. experiences. Yeah. 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 Are, are, like, do you feel like that was a success? There's never been a study done in terms of how many really were worked out very well? And how Did you hear those stories, though? Pardon? Did you hear the stories? Oh yes, oh yeah. 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 And uh, I've I've heard those kind of stories from when they were adults, but they're not the ones that are going to speak out. And so that's why you need a research study on that in terms of seeing. Okay, now, of all the children that were placed, how many worked out? Well, and, and what the percentage is, I, I wouldn't know. What would you imagine a study like that would find, though? I would find that um, well over half of them would be on the positive side. There are academics who study the success rate of transracial adoption, and others who have dedicated their careers to studying Indigenous child welfare. Raven Sinclair is a Cree academic from Saskatchewan, and she's also a 60-scoop survivor. The practice has always been about removal. 
because of the cultural biases, right? We've never been perceived of as people who can raise children. Uh, Raven is researching just how common it was for these kinds of adoptions to break down. She tells us about an academic named Christopher Bagley, who studied this in the 1990s. Uh, But indigenous to white transracial adoption is the anomaly. It's just a failure, and he thought it was because of the denigration of indigenous culture. Basically, racism, <laughs> systemic institutionalized and individual interpersonal, interpersonal racism, had you know played some factor, and I have to agree with him absolutely. So it's Raven says children who survived the '60s scoop not only had to deal with racism uh, in society, but often in their own homes. So when we experience racism, we're in isolation. So it re- becomes a really, really solitary journey. There's only so much of that psychological turmoil you can contend with before you have to just go. Raven says the research found that half of the adoptions of Indigenous kids in white homes broke down. Jen tells Raven this sounds a lot like what happened with the Semaganist children, and it resonates with her, because Raven also left her adopted home at a young age. Your story is so much like the story. It's just the themes. I like hearing that. I grew up thinking I was the only one. Well, and that's what they said. But Raven and Cleo and Johnny and Christine were not the only ones. There were thousands of Indigenous kids apprehended in the 60s scoop, and there are still thousands of kids in care today. Some say that the number of Indigenous kids in care is higher than during the height of residential schools. Cindy Blackstock did incredible research, and she said Indigenous children have spent between 89 and 2012, the equivalent of 66 million nights in foster care. That is a machine. So has it changed? No, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. The federal government now agrees with people like Raven and Nora and says that taking Indian and Métis kids from their homes was wrong. They call the overrepresentation of Indigenous kids in care a humanitarian crisis, and they've promised swift action. We are facing a humanitarian crisis in this country where Indigenous children are vastly, disproportionately overrepresented in the child welfare system. But I've learned through this story that helping Indigenous children is about more than ensuring they don't lose their culture in an alien environment. I wonder if the government solutions will actually support families who are still struggling. Struggling with poverty, insecure housing, struggling with the ongoing effects of residential schools, struggling with the racism that still divides us. The people behind the 60s scoop also believed they were going to make things better for the Indigenous kids in their care. Will the latest government initiatives actually help kids like Cleo? And mothers like Lillian? There's a note in Johnny's ward file that I read before and didn't think much of. But now that I know more of Lillian's story, I realize how poignant this one little line is. Five months after all of her children were made permanent wards and eligible for adoption, there was a note from February 1973. It says that Lillian left a Valentine's gift for Johnny at the foster home where he was staying. We don't know why, but Lillian wasn't successful in her attempt to get her children back. 
Instead, they were all adopted out into white families, and she didn't see them again for years. She reconnected with all of them as adults, except Cleo. Nora, the woman who tried to help Lillian get her kids back, also lost touch with her for many years, until 2012, at a hearing for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC traveled across the country, hearing from survivors of residential schools, to bear witness to their stories and to ensure that this dark chapter in Canadian history would never be forgotten. Nora went to the event in Saskatoon. I walked in and uh, she's in this wheelchair and I looked at her and I thought, that looks like Lillian. And I looked at her and then she looked at me because I was a Thibodeau then and she looked at me and she said, my angel Thibodeau. And I said Lillian, so we, of course we hugged and had her cry. Nora says that Lillian asked her to be there when she spoke about her life at the TRC hearing. So I had to go and speak at one of them. She's, can I come with you and tell my story? So I pushed her and I, it was in a teepee. And I took her in and she talked in a circle. What is she? She talked about losing her children and now having her, getting her children back. I don't know how long she got to, when her children came back, how much time she had with her children. But whatever time it was, she was, she was very happy about it. And for her children to know that their mother never, never gave up on them. And uh, a lot of the people that sat in there were very sad, and they, they shook hands with her and hugged her. And, and she was very proud that they, they told her, you're a very strong lady. So she had her say, and, and that was the last time I seen her. This has been an incredibly difficult story to uncover. I know that to truly understand Cleo's story, we need to know Lillian's. We need to feel the weight of what they both went through. When I think that this is just one family out of thousands, it feels heavy in my chest. Learning about Cleo and Lillian has helped me see the ripple effects across families and generations. I'm beginning to understand how women, and girls in particular, have borne the brunt of the effects of the violence that colonization and residential schools and racism have had on our communities. My heart breaks for a young Lillian, only seven years old, living all alone in the world that Roderick King described. And then for a young Cleo, in and out of foster homes, and sent away to live in a foreign place, all by herself. But I know this is not the end of Cleo's story. Christine and the rest of her siblings want to know what's in that police report. We're headed back to New Jersey with Christine. She's determined to find more answers about her sister and to try to find out why Cleo took her life. On the next Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. Why does it say Barry? Barry is underlined. I love Barry. It's all underlined. And who's Barry? She says, I'm going to have a gun to protect me from rape. It feels like we're looking at a picture of Cleo's life in New Jersey through a foggy glass. And the more we read, the clearer it becomes. 
she was hitchhiking, from what I understand. She actually contacted some young man with a truck, with a pickup truck, and uh, she was supposed to meet him and uh, go up to Canada then. There's somebody named Barry who's referenced in this police file. Does that name ring a bell? Um, Connie, this is not going to be a very pleasant conversation. To hear more about the history and legacy of residential schools in Canada, check out the first season of our podcast. To find it, just follow the links on our website at cbc.ca slash findingcleo. Finding Cleo is written and hosted by me, Connie Walker. The podcast is produced by Marnie Luke and Jennifer Fowler. Mika Anderson is our audio producer, and our senior producer is Heather Evans. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.